Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Sales reps, stop me if you've heard this line. You are only as good as your last quarter. Success in sales is quantifiable, and it can seem like an endless chase to hit one's target with little room to breathe when you actually do. The constant hustle can have massive repercussions on one's mental health. But there is hope. Today's guest, Jeff Risley, is tackling the mental health issues plaguing sales professionals. Motivated by experiences from his own sales career, Jeff founded Sales Health Alliance, a company that teaches salespeople how to improve their mental health, build resilience, and manage stress. Prior to this, Jeff started in media and marketing, working for Mindshare and Mullane Communications. From there, he moved into a series of sales rep and sales leadership roles at companies such as Aussie Farmers Direct, World Trade Group, Inacuity, and CrowdBabble. If you're a sales professional looking for ways to manage your mental health, then be sure to visit saleshealthalliance.com for tips, insights, and more information on the corporate services Jeff's company provides. The Sales Health Alliance is a company that's focused on helping salespeople reach peak levels of sales performance through better mental health. So it was really born out of my own experience from working in sales. I really, um, very early on in my career, I struggled with things like anxiety, insomnia, and panic attacks. And later on in my career, it really just became clear that anxiety in sales is not optional. It's really part of everyday life. And when salespeople and teams start to become anxious, depressed, and burnt out, their sales performance really starts to suffer. So my role and what I do at Sales Health Alliance is really lead trainings around resilience, mindset, stress management, mental health to help salespeople, like I said, reach those peak levels of sales performance through better mental health. Because my belief is salespeople really are the corporate athletes of the organization who need the pads and the helmets they need to play that contact sport of sales each day. Oh, I love the part where you said we are the corporate athletes. And as someone who has been in media and ad tech sales since 2008, I'm very much looking forward to having this chat because a lot of things you just said there in the opening really resonate with me and we're only like, what, a minute in. But anyways, before we go any further, I want to go back to the beginning. Jeff, where are you from? So born and raised in Toronto and did some traveling after university, but yeah, primarily in Toronto for the majority of my life. Like proper Toronto or like, say, suburban Toronto in the GTA? Yeah, so grew up outside of Toronto, just uh, in Etobicoke, so not too far, but 30-minute subway ride uh, to downtown. And then when I got back from university, I managed to grab a place, a condo, and I've been living downtown the entire time. So what was life like growing up for you in Etobicoke? It was good. It was quiet. It was, uh, I feel like it was a very, I guess, a very... Uh, sheltered way to grow up. It was a, a good neighborhood. Went to a, a small school out there. Good friends, good family. Um, yeah, so life life was good. No no complaints. I'm pretty familiar with Etobicoke. I grew up in Mississauga, right near the border of Etobicoke. So you're from the north side, the south side. I know I'm making it sound like it's a big deal, like east coast, west coast, but I know it's pretty different north than it is south. Like you like the Sherway crowd or like the Young and Eglinton crowd? Or sorry, not the, the Kipling and Eglinton crowd. Yeah, so I'd say probably a little bit in the middle. So it's, it's, I was just a few streets north of Islington and Dundas, if anyone knows where that is. So very like kind of right in the middle, not too far north of the QEW or the Queensway. What were your interests or hobbies growing up? So I was always big into superheroes. So I was a huge superhero nerd, whether that's Marvel or DC, probably lean more towards sort of Marvel, X-Men, Spider-Man, all that good stuff. Lots of video games, and then I was very active from a sports standpoint. So I was playing hockey, competitive hockey, uh, and competitive baseball in the winters and summers. And then when I got to high school, I transitioned into competitive basketball. And now basketball is the sport that I play the most, for sure. Could we nerd out about the superheroes for a second? Because literally, you're speaking my language. I want to. I, I like asking people who are heavy into comic books and, and heavy into that genre. Do you remember what got you into it? I don't. I think the, I guess my first memory is like, I always had like the, the action figures and would just spend hours just playing with action figures and going on little adventures with my own imagination. And then for whatever reason, I, I have this like really vague, but clear memory of always getting up Saturday morning. And that's when all sort of the X-Men and the Spider-Man 
cartoons were on and i just remember waking up super early to watch them all the time for me it was the 60s batman show and it's not like i'm from the 60s but it was in heavy heavy rotation daily when wow. uh, i was growing up in the 80s and so i mean once i got hooked on that it was just a domino effect after that and you said you're more team marvel than you are dc has it always been that way or did the marvel cinematic universe kind of push you in that direction because i started off personally as a dc guy but the stuff that kevin feige and disney and marvel have been putting out is so incredible that you can't help but focus more on them yeah i think i think i was probably now that you mentioned i think i was probably split like i always liked the, the batman animated series growing up and obviously Christopher Nolan and the Dark Knight trilogy and everything was just was so, fantastic. Far, so far ahead of its game. But I, I definitely think it's flipped in sort of the last five to 10 years with that, with what you're saying, everything that the MCU is doing. It's just so crazy what they've been able to do in terms of sync and integrate all of these different movies from over the, how long is how long has it been probably 15 years at least, Two, 2000 years? and 2007 is when the first iron man came out was it 2007 no to this or it was may of 2000 or april of 2008 it's it's been pretty pretty incredible to see so uh definitely probably more marvel but uh, i think i think you're right it was, it was it's probably used to be pretty 50 50 and it's transitioned more to be be more heavily weighted because of the mco did you have any influences growing up sort of any role models that you looked up to uh family member athlete anyone like that Ooh, that's a good question um no one honestly is coming to mind i think if any if i was looking up to anyone like i always sort of you know idolized wanting to be a superhero that would probably be part of it but in in terms of athletes i think i was big into hockey but i can't really remember any of the kind of hockey players that i was i was i was really following as soon as i got into basketball i feel like basketball is very much a star-driven sport so i always looked up to someone like kobe bryant who was just such a, a workhorse but also just a legend when it came to things like growth mindset and 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 performing under pressure but also looking for different ways to inspire people in, on the court and off the court did you get into basketball because of the raptors or were you already into it before the raptors landed in toronto which i think was i think 95 or 96. i was always playing basketball on my driveway and I had a basketball net and I was never like, it was always something that I was doing just passively. No, nothing, some, nothing I would ever do competitively. And then by grade eight, I think I'd probably played about eight years of competitive hockey leading up to that. And then by that point, I was just, I was just so sick and tired of hockey. I was on the ice probably six or seven days a week all of the time that I played it to a point where I absolutely hated it. And I think even today I can, barely sit through a hockey game just because I'm so disengaged by it. Um, and then it kind of went from like one obsession of playing hockey all the time to another obsession of playing basketball all the time. And then, and, and it just sort of became my passion and, and, and a sport that I just really grew to love. Do you think the amount of preparation time required just to play hockey, like just a single game or go to practice had something to do with it? Because I played hockey a little bit growing up and just kind of comparing basketball and hockey in my head, You've got to get to the ice. You said you were there all the time, which means you probably had practices at like six in the morning, which is still an ungodly hour for a child. But then you've got to get there. You've got to get ready, get on the ice and then get undressed and get all your equipment off and then go back out. Whereas basketball, it's a little bit more simplistic. I'm not diminishing it in any way, but you're really just kind of bringing your shoes and that's all you need to bring. And that's it. Yeah, I think you touched on it for sure. I think part of it is... Um, is is the simplistic piece of you can always it's very hard to get better at hockey by yourself because it's that's a very good point like you you can't really unless you live nearby an outdoor live near an outdoor rink it's very hard to go and sort of play by yourself but you can always be shooting you can always be dribbling you can always be doing things it's very very easy to get better by yourself and i think that's kind of what drew me to it was just personally and individually, I was able to see myself getting better very, very quickly. Uh, I was, all, I'm, I'm also quite tall. I'm, I'm six, six. So I was, a, I was a tall kid and. Oh, people think, must've been clamoring to have you play for their team. Like you must've been, I don't know. I like the high school coach must've been like, Jeff, do you want to come try this a bit? Come on. We need someone at your height. We can do the rest. Anything like that. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is I was recruited to my high school to play, to play hockey. But, uh, but, but 
as I didn't even end up playing a single game of hockey there because as soon as I got to UCC, which was the high school I went to, I was just so sick of hockey by that point that I just threw all of my time into basketball. And it was funny. I started off grade nine on the basketball team being the worst player on the team who could barely shoot. And then by grade 12, I was fortunate enough to be the, the captain of the varsity team. So I put a lot of effort. I was very much a gym rat throughout high school. What was your first ever part-time job? Ooh, first ever part-time job. The first time Jeff got uh, his very first paycheck, like a legitimate paycheck. I'm not talking about babysitting, like one where it was just like, okay, I'm actually on uh, payroll somewhere. Yeah, so I think it was actually a, a basketball camp. It was like the the high school, the UCC ran like a summer basketball camp. So I was a, a camp counselor there. So I'm not joking when I said my entire life became basketball because I was playing it all year. And then in the summers, I saw it as an opportunity to have more access to a good gym and a home gym uh, or like a home court gym at the, at the school. So, yeah, it was definitely uh, I think that was it. It was basketball counselor at uh, UCC basketball game. OK, so because you were a serious basketball player, what was your shoe of choice? Shoe of choice. They always changed because that was really that was really the time when different like it really exploded. Like I think I had Iversons at, at one point. I know I really liked McGrady's, and then there was Vince Carter that had those like he had like the shocks, but also had like the full shoe was wrapped in like these sort of like elastic bands, which made them almost impossible to put on and off. And wasn't that at a weird time though when Vince Carter? Because originally he signed, I think, with Puma. And then as his stock started to pick up, Nike approached him. And there was this sort of weird way where he got out of his Puma contract. But I don't think they were allowed to actually call him Vince Carter in the commercials. Like he was like Dr. Funk, I think. Like I, if I can find the commercial, I'll send it to you after. But I just remember there was something and it was like we're going back to the early 2000s. So it's interesting because it's like here you are talking about that Vince Carter Nike shoe that I don't think Vince Carter could fully get behind or they couldn't market him appropriately to it. So it shows that it still worked. He was still the face of the shoe. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not too familiar with the sort of the politics behind it, but I, I do remember a shoe. I, I guess one I guess one story I'll share that is sort of my, when anyone asked me what's like, what's one thing people don't know about you or I think would like kind of anytime I can drop like a cool story, it's back in grade eight when I was playing basketball before. I really got into it. I actually played against Steph Curry um, in a basketball tournament out in Etobicoke against him and his brother because Del Curry was on the Raptors at that time. And we happened to meet at a, this really random basketball tournament. And even back then, Steph Curry and his brother were just amazing and totally destroyed us. <laughs> oh, nice. I mean, I guess that's kind of like being touched by God. Yeah, yeah. But it's just it's just crazy to think how... Like that was who knows how many people he's he's played against in, throughout his life and throughout his career. And it's, that's like the one moment I have is my interaction with him. who's like now obviously or was just crowned and still crowned the greatest shooter of all time. It's just a very, very cool thing that I, a cool memory that I have that I like to like to share. After high school, you packed up and you moved to Montreal and you went to McGill University. What made you what made you pick McGill first and foremost? And. Why study sociology and geography? Yeah, so I had an opportunity to play basketball there um, after after high school, which I didn't end up going through with. I just didn't really get along with the coach as much as I would have liked. And then there was also the probably more real fact of being 18 or 19 living in Montreal is is a very fun place to to spend your time. So kind of prioritized the social life over sort of those very early morning practices that would, would have come with that. And then in terms of the reason why I chose geography and sociology, it was, there was no real intention or reason behind it. I was the sort of the classic kid that went to university without fully knowing what I wanted to do it when I grew up. And they seemed like topics that I was, would be interested in and, I always enjoyed the environment and understanding how groups of people move and why they do certain things and patterns and things like that. So I guess I was drawn to it for those reasons, but it was never like, oh, I want to be a sociologist or I want to be a geographer, a geologist. It was, they just seemed like the easiest ways to get to that, get to graduation in, in, in my mind. 
did your mind, I mean, did your perception of those topics or your passion for them, did it even increase when you started taking those classes? Because I get what you're saying. Like there are a lot of instances where people are like, okay, this is where I'm going to start off in university. I might finish it and take it to graduation or I might change my major after a year. But did you find that you grew into your major? Not really. No. I think what was interesting is, is I, I started off by taking psychology and psychology was just like, I just love learning about the brain. And that was sort of my, the first thing that I was attracted to, but I couldn't take the tests. Like the tests were all, I've never been a really, a really great learner and test taker when it comes to heavy multiple choice evaluations. So I've essentially failed out of psychology and, um, and then that's where sociology came in. It was rather than understanding individuals, it's understanding groups of people. What was interesting in terms of growing into something, I found my way back into that interest and that passion for psychology when it came to working in sales and really understanding and leaning into the mental health side of things, but also sort of the psychology and the influence side of things in terms of why people buy and different things that you can be doing on a daily basis to protect your own mental health. After graduation, correct me if I'm wrong, your first job in sort of the media or marketing industry was, was it at Melanie Communications? Uh, Mullane Communications. So oh, geez, was... I messed that up. Mullane Communications. Oh, man. That's, that's okay. I, I can't even say I can't read my own handwriting because I, I typed this out. So Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Uh, so that was actually my mom's company. So my mom and dad had a, they were a, a travel, not a travel agency, but they, they would be the, 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 they would provide marketing and advertising for different states. So they had clients like Texas or they had clients like North Carolina. So their company was really focused on um, branding and, and, and attracting Canadians to come visit the various clients that they were working with. So I wasn't doing anything remarkable at that company. I was doing just, you know, basic grunt and admin work for sure. What did you learn, though, about the company and the industry doing the grunt work? Because just to use me as an example, I started off as a coordinator at CBC, working on the TV sales team, and it wasn't the sexiest of jobs, but I, I had a new appreciation for keeping your shit together and getting organized because they'd be like, here's what you need to do. And there wasn't really like there'd be some structures or guardrails in place, but more or less it was up to you to track the work you had to do and make sure it was organized and communicated properly upwards. Did you learn anything about yourself? from that perspective in your first job? Um, I'm trying to think, like, I don't think so. I think it, I think I learned that it was definitely, I, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really drawn to the travel industry. I think that's probably the biggest learning was like, there's a lot, like there's, it's yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think I was, I can't remember exactly, but I think I started working um, for my, my parents' company for that those couple summers, I think it was after 9-11. And that was like a huge, huge swing for my parents was like 9-11 changed the travel industry overnight and decimated it for at least five, five years before people felt comfortable, comfortable flying again. So I think some of that lingered over as, wow, like this is definitely not an industry that I want to be a part of when something major can have such an impact on so many people's lives and businesses. Let's circle back on travel a little bit. I think you mentioned early on that you did get a chance to to get out and travel. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. So after university, I uh, went with two of my friends um, and we did some traveling to Southeast Asia. So we flew into Beijing. Then we did some, uh, went to Hong Kong for a little bit, then went through to Thailand, Laos, Bali, and then ended up in uh, Australia for a little bit. So I did, we did two weeks in in Sydney, and then uh, we were supposed to spend a full, essentially, year in Melbourne. But uh, I wasn't overly drawn to Australia. I think I, I went in with the expectation that that I would find my passion, or I'd find sort of my purpose in this far off, exotic place known as Australia. But when I ended up getting over there, it was very similar to, to back home, and I just realized that as like look, if I'm going to start a career, I'm going to be going home at some point anyway. So I may as well do that now and head home because I just wasn't fully in love with Australia. As crazy as that sounds for, for some people. So from all the countries you visited, which one, which one was your favorite? Or even if not even the country, just a specific city? 
So one as part of that trip, I would say Hong Kong. And it's really too bad with what happened has happened recently because I would have loved to go back to Hong Kong. I thought it was just one of the most fascinating cities I've ever been to. That is for sure, I think, a place that was just so special back when when I was traveling. I was just never I'll never forget just taking the uh, the tram or the bus or whatever it was uh, from the airport and you, you're going along sort of this mountain cliff and then all of a sudden this bus wraps around the side of a mountain and you see the city, this massive, massive city built into essentially an island and built into this mountainside. It was incredible. But I would say I did some traveling with my girlfriend probably about five years ago now and we did a, a trip to Greece. So Greece, I think, is number one. I'd love to go back to Greece when things sort of open back up a bit, uh, because that was just such a great trip as well. So when you came back from Asia, mm-hmm. you landed at Mindshare, or was that after working for your parents? So Mindshare was before. So I did, I graduated, did about, uh, from university, did about eight months working at Mindshare. And that was just, uh, again, it was sort of a, a Oh, so you were at Mindshare first. Okay. Yeah, so that was a bit of a seat filler type chair or seat filler type role. And then my two friends were like, hey, I'm going, we're going to Australia for a year. Do you want, do you want to come? And I was like, absolutely. Like, let's, let's get going. So I, yeah, I have no, nothing. Uh, if you think about things that I learned there, again, not, uh, not too much from that role either. But you learned that that wasn't what you wanted to do. Yeah, for sure. And how crazy media buying is when it comes to the amount of money that companies are willing to spend on a 15 second commercial or a 30 second commercial at like prime times it's just it's just insane to me yeah and then think about that applied to the super bowl or imagine the stanley cup final with the toronto maple leafs in it i mean the sky's the limit there they're willing to pay anything for that well i just don't know why anyone would ever I don't know why anyone would ever spend money on a commercial when there is essentially zero analytics. I mean, like, I just feel like, again, I'm no expert in this. I just feel like the ROI on digital marketing and be able to get hyper-targeted with the types of people that you want to see and, and measure conversions is just way more impactful than any money ever spent on a commercial. You're talking to an ex-TV guy who left and went into digital. And a lot of my TV peers were like, why are you leaving? What are you doing? Do you want to go from selling 15 second spots to this thing called a leader, a leaderboard or, or a big box? And I'm like, it's the way the world's going. Yeah, a lot of people thought I was crazy for leaving at the time in digital, but best move I could have made for my career really helped. But yeah, especially if you were ahead of it. Let's talk about your next role. Aussie Farmers Director. Have I got that right? Aussie Farmers Direct. So, Direct. Jeez, I keep messing these up. My God. That's that's. Okay. And I typed these out. Aussie Farmers Direct. So was this a job? This sounds like a job from your travels in Australia, but you didn't last in Australia for very long. So I imagine this was over here in Canada, right? No. So it was in us. So I ended. I was in Australia or in Melbourne specifically, probably for about a month and a half before okay okay sorry i thought it was just for a couple of weeks you said you know what i'm not going to spend the year here so i'm not going to commit and i'm just gone okay yeah yeah so we were there for like a month or i was there for a month and a half and in that process like the plan was all always to use melbourne as like the home base so pretty much as soon as we got there my my, myself and, and my two friends we started looking for a job so aussie farmers direct was a hilarious job where we were selling Australian farm products to Australians over the phone. And we all managed to get a job there. So it was very, uh, it was was a good environment for us to all go to work, to go to work together and then come home together. So that was really, really nice. But yeah, it was definitely kind of the first introduction to sales was working, working there and selling over the phone. So wait a minute, when you said you were selling farm products just to clarify like were we talking like milk and eggs and beef or are we talking about like actual farm products like a plow or a tractor no no no. so the 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 first one so think of just think about any kind of modern day uh 
food food kit delivery type box so fresh veggies fresh fruit okay so it's kind of like a hello fresh before there was hello fresh yeah and and australians are super super passionate about uh, about supporting the farmers or supporting local farmers so they, they were very keen to support locally grown farm products from their own farmers what did you learn about yourself doing that kind of job because you're selling a very interesting product and you're working the phones for it. It's not like today where I guess you could sort of say the premise, I'd say the cold call is dead because no one picks up their phone anymore. So it really comes down to cold emailing if you want to get anyone's attention. I think I had a natural, uh, a natural tendency. Again, there wasn't a lot of training provided at this company. So it was probably more, more just raw, raw, skills that I picked up from socializing throughout my life but it was I wasn't amazing at it I did I was probably the second best on the team but I definitely learned that it was very similar to similar to I guess basketball and similar to sports like getting the reps in trying just like being conversational and wanting to understand the other person's perspective I always wanted to be empathetic to hear you know why they canceled or why they weren't interested and rather than sort of looking at rejection as something that was personal and something that would, that, that was ill-intentioned. It was more, okay, like, let's just try and pause for a second and try to understand what's actually going on. So it doesn't happen on this call or this conversation. I can at least take that learning into the next, into the next one. So was this your very first sales job? Yeah, for sure. Okay. And so after that, you moved back to Canada and you joined the World Trade Group, and you were a sales consultant there. So tell us about what the World Trade Group is and, and what your role there entailed. Yeah, so sales, or uh, World Trade Group was very much a boiler room type of sales environment. We were selling corporate workshops to oil and gas executives. And essentially my worth as a, as a human at the time, what it felt like, or my worth as an employee was being measured on whether or not I could make 200 dials a day, achieve and achieve two and a half hours of talk time. And if you weren't hitting your metrics, you were let go pretty quickly. So very much that sink or swim type of sales environment, but I managed to do really well from an individual contributor level. Went on to sort of win all sorts of cool incentives and get you know commission checks and bonuses and all that good stuff. But definitely behind the scenes, I was not okay. I had really bad anxiety, really bad insomnia and really bad panic attacks that made it a very, very challenging time in my life to, to really navigate this very intense, high-stress situation. Um, there, was, there, there was and there still is a ton of stigma around mental health within sales. You started by describing it as a boiler room environment. And as soon as you said that, I said, okay, this is going to be one of his tougher roles. So would you say that this was the role that kind of woke you up to the importance of mental health? Yes. Uh, yes and no. I think a lot of the, like, it definitely was the time when I started to lean in and learn about what mental health was, what is anxiety, what is, like, how does the brain react to stress, and what are sort of the different things you can start doing on a daily basis to to um, become more resilient. I think it was... A, there was a, a lot of inter, introspection that went in during that time, kind of inner work and, and, and exploring. But to be, to be fair, at the same time, I, I don't think a lot of the learnings fully were understood and absorbed until probably, I don't know, maybe five or six years later. Um, because I, I, the thing about working in sales and not having the skills to initially to kind of understand your own mental health, a lot of the coping mechanisms that are promoted is a heavy drink culture, a heavy party culture. So I think a lot of the, like I was very much consumed by the party culture that sort of took over my life. And it wasn't until I started learning these different tactics and through different kind of reflections on that period of my time that did I start to kind of really understand and, and learn about oh, that I was doing that and I was sort of drinking heavily or was partying heavily because that was happening and connecting the dots didn't happen until probably a few years later. I have a condition that I kind of coined a term for that comes up in sales, but no one really identifies it. And I call it social fatigue. 
And basically it means is that as a rep, you could spend an entire week whining and dining, talking to people, eating restaurant food every day, which sounds pretty sexy. If you can say to people, you've had a nice lunch and a nice dinner and it's all been paid for for like four or five days straight. But because you're always going around talking to people, delivering presentations, there kind of comes a point where, you know, for Friday night, I don't want to go out because if I go to the bar, it's just going to remind me of work because that's where I conduct business. It's just fun to sit at home and do nothing. And a couple of friends of mine in the industry, I had to I told them that and they thought I was crazy. And then they processed it a little bit and said, yeah, you know what? Maybe I do need some me time as well. Well, it sounds like you are describing an introverted seller, which I definitely, I always felt I was more of an ambivert and sort of in the middle, but I'm definitely think I'm more of an introverted seller where social, I really enjoy social activities and being social and selling, but it definitely depletes me way quicker than someone who's an extrovert and maybe gains a lot of energy from socializing and going to dinners and all those things. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I agree. Like, I think that was part of it was not only was I was, was I depleting my, my energy levels and my ability to think properly during the day by always having to be on, but I was then depleting it even further by staying out late and partying. One thing that you brought up about, uh, about the World Trade Group. They monitored the length of phone calls, the number of phone calls you were making, and they, they basically turned it into a metric that you had to achieve on a daily basis. I've been in instances where they do that, with, say, for example, with emails or the number of RFPs you bring in. And especially when it comes to emails, I think that's a dangerous metric because all of a sudden your mindset changes. Rather than you thinking about quality, like really putting a lot of time into a prospect email or a response to someone, all you're doing is looking at that figure. And thinking, you know what, if they want me to pump out, say, 50 emails today, I'm just pulling a number out of the air. I'm going to do what needs to be done to put 50 emails out because I know they're looking at that. It's not like they're going to go in and read my emails and go, oh, you know what? He only did 20 today, but my God, were they fantastic emails. And oh, look at the response rate he's getting from those emails as well. Did you find in that organization that was kind of the case? Or legitimately, did it seem like if you hit those goals... There was there was sales success on top of that. It's not like if you just hit those goals, you were you you still had a chance of failing. That it was actually a good lead in and a good metric for success. I guess to answer your question, no, I definitely don't think it was a good metric of success because it did it, it doesn't like it. Yeah, you're right. Like the metrics become meaningless if you if the if the quality is declining so rapidly, and that's for sure what would happen. Like. Like every single person at that company who was selling had essentially, they were called like they were, they were dead numbers. So numbers that would go specifically to things like voicemails or things like, or, or, or numbers that would never pick up. So if you're ever behind on your metrics, you would could call these, you know, these dead numbers to boost your metrics. And there's just no value in doing that. But as a rep, you at the time, you felt like you needed to do that to, to protect yourself, to keep your job. And like, and, and you do it on days when you just didn't have it, when you were so exhausted and so burnt out that you couldn't focus. Like you had to do that to keep your job, even though it was totally unproductive and totally meaningless compared to having a vulnerable conversation with your manager saying, Hey, I'm just, I can't do it today. Like what if I you know, did other things that would add value to, to kind of building my pipeline in different ways. So from the World Trade Group, you moved on to a company called Inacuity. So tell us a little bit about what the company was all about. And then let's talk about the different roles you had there, because correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you had three different roles there. You kept climbing up the ladder. Yeah. So Inacuity was uh, essentially was a company, a competitor to World Trade Group, but it was a very much a startup. So my manager, who I really connected with at World Trade Group, left to start a competing business called Inacuity. So very much the same selling oil and gas workshops to, to executives. Uh, and that was sort of my transition in when uh, he left and probably seven months after he left, I went and joined him to really start dipping my toes into sort of the startup life and what that is like to work for a company from the very early stages. And tell me about your progression because you started off as a sales consultant how did your role change when you were a team lead? And then how did it change again when you became a sales manager? 
Yeah, just be, it was just more and more responsibility. So I think I was the second sales hire, if I remember correctly. So there's only, or the fourth person, fourth person in the company. So essentially roll the role switch from being the one making the calls, sending the emails and closing the business to as the team developed, moving to a team lead, it was sort of this player coach role where I was doing a bit of both. And then to the manager role where it was getting involved with things like strategy, but also more coaching and mentoring newer reps and things like that. So after that, you moved on to Indeed. And I'm sure we're talking about Indeed here, the, the job board, right? The giant job site. Yes, that is correct. So what did your role entail there as an account executive? Yeah, so account executive, it was just basically just selling i don't know if you've ever been on indeed i'm sure you have but it was it was selling sponsored job spots so you're an ad tech guy so it was selling prominent positioning on their on on indeed's website to elevate the visibility of open jobs for specific clients so that they could hire faster and find more find better quality candidates than they would than what they would have gotten otherwise and then from there, you moved on to CrowdBabble. Tell us a little bit about CrowdBabble and what you were selling there. Yeah, so CrowdBabble was focused more on social media analytics. So again, I went from, when I went to Indeed, it was very much a, a big company vibe, big company feel that I didn't really like as much. And then CrowdBabble was, again, more of that startup environment, which I really enjoyed being able to be less of a wheel or, or piece of, a piece of machinery in this big cog of our big or this big sales machine. So CrowdBubble was again going back to the ground floor and building a team from the ground up. Let me actually ask you about that because you touched on something interesting. So do you you prefer working for smaller companies or at least companies that are in the startup phase versus bigger companies like you said a wheel and a cog? I have a question though about that. Sorry, go for it. Oh no, I was going to say small company, hundred percent. Let me ask you this though: working at a startup usually people are required to wear many hats. Seeing as, I mean, you're a very big advocate for mental health and sales, you don't find that wearing so many different hats, although you do get a lot of beneficial experience from doing that, that doesn't uh, create some sort of mental health issues? I don't, I don't think so. I think it, I think it works. It, it all, it all comes down to having boundaries, right? Like it's like, I'm in, I'm a solo entrepreneur right now. So I, Sales Health Alliance, I'm responsible for every single aspect of the business. And there was definitely, it was definitely stressful very early on learning what that meant and the responsibility involved. But now it's, yeah, like it's just, it's honestly just balance routine and, and, and knowing how to refill your bucket and be aware of when you're not feeling, feeling so hot and what you can do to feel better. Like it's, yeah, I, I feel great. I know there's like, I know there's like, you know, big thing around hustle culture and there's like solo entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs right now that are saying, oh, you got to work 60, 70, 80, 100 hours a week if you want to start your own business. And honestly, that's total, total BS. Like, I don't think I've ever worked more than 50 hours ever on this business in a week. It's always been very balanced and really focused on how do I maximize those three to five good hours of focus time that we get every single day. And then any other hours outside of that, how do I focus on replenishing those three to five good hours for the next day to make sure that I'm showing up in that very focused, very alert, but calm state. So the precursor to Sales Health Alliance was Sales Mentor. You're, I guess you could say, would that be the first company you founded? Yeah, so that was like kind of my first step in to entrepreneurship was starting that company um, because I, when I was working at CrowdBabble, I started to get more involved with the startup community within Toronto and it became abundantly clear that there was a lot of tech founders that were having trouble building and scaling sales teams. So the, through sort of the network I built, it was a good opportunity to start a sales consulting company to help some of these early stage sales companies get set up. And as a, as a sales consultant, what are you helping them with? Are you recommending, are you working with them on their sales collateral? Are you working with them on their pitch, helping them find the value proposition they have to communicate? Yeah. Stuff like that? All, all of that, all of that and helping them hire. Sometimes it was, yeah, 
it was all part of it. So where did the idea for Sales Health Alliance come from? Like, where was that light bulb moment when you're like, this is something I'm passionate about and I think I can solve a problem for everyone with it? Uh, yeah, so I think it came like, well, as while I, when I started Sales uh, Mentor Alliance, uh, I think that's what I was calling it, Sales Knowledge. I can't, I, the name changed a few times, but it started as Topkin Sales, but it then changed to Sales Mentor. But anyways, um, yeah, it came from like a, a pretty gnarly health experience where I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And it was through that experience dealing with cancer where a lot of things really came into focus. Um, and it really forced me to re reevaluate, uh, you know, the types of things I was, the types of things I was working on and how I was spending my time each day. I didn't want to spork anymore on things that I didn't enjoy or wasn't really engaged with and even though i really liked the idea of being an entrepreneur and being a sales consultant i wasn't loving it as much and i realized that you know this the mental health like i said is, is such a, a problem within sales and not talked about nearly enough and not supported nearly enough that it just became clear that that was an area that i wanted to move into and focus on because the same strategies i was using to take care of my mental health and sales I was naturally executing on during this next stressful period of my life. So that's how I kind of knew I was on to something was like, obviously getting cancer is not fun, but it wasn't terrible. And I think it wasn't terrible for me because I had learned all of this stuff to help me maintain a good mindset and good balance and, you know, a good support network. All of these things I was le I'd learned came in handy. So I was started thinking, how, do, how can I turn this into a business and start helping people in a more meaningful way. And one of the things you did along the way was you published your very first, was it your first book, The Guide to Better Mental Health and Sales? That is correct. That's the first book that I've published. And um, it was had a, had a, had a publisher. It was, it was a very crazy experience. When I it started, it, it is an ebook and had an opportunity to have it published into a real book last year, but decided not to do it just because... I just feel like publishers take a lot. So in the future, I'm planning to hopefully turn it into a self-published book and and have a have a physical copy out there at some point too. Well, I want to talk about it a little bit because I did buy a copy in advance and I did give it a read. And before we go any further though, if anyone listening to this wants to get a copy of the book, where can they buy it? Yeah, so there's going to be a link on, on saleshealthalliance.com. So if you just go under the training section here, there should be the first link there. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and again, it's LinkedIn under my profile there. So just Jeff Risley. Uh, so the biggest wake-up call for me was, it was on, oh, geez, what page is this? I think it's page 14. So it's early on into the book, and this is a big book. And it's about day 11, take your breaks. And it's showing the actual brain scans of people who do not take breaks in between meetings versus those who are just in back-to-back -back every day. I'm a bit of a visual learner. I tend to learn more by example. But just by looking at that page, I could not believe... And I don't know if warped is the right term to use, but just, I guess, just how physically exhausted the brain looked when you didn't have a chance to take those breaks. Like just seeing that kind of impact right there. Because you kind of think, oh, you're stressed. All you have to do is rest and you'll get over it. You don't think that there are any sort of, I guess you could sort of say neurological changes that happen when you don't take breaks for yourself, when you don't prioritize mental health. This was a huge eye opener for me. Yeah, but the thing is, is it doesn't take much to resolve it. And I think the I think you're talking about like the Microsoft study that was done. That's exactly something, yep. Something as simple as having a ten minute break between meetings. The the difference in how str stressed the overall brain was by the end of the day. So someone that I think had to do four back to back meetings versus four meetings with ten minute breaks in between. It was just totally different. So again, it's a micro change. It, is going to make a huge difference over time. One page that spoke to me, like it literally looked like you had probably analyzed my habits for this page was day 55, bedtime procrastination. I forget what page it's on, but basically it was all about the individual who works and works and works so much that what they do is they try to find a little bit of me time by putting off bedtime, which is not a good thing for mental health at all. And it's funny because I was doing it. I didn't assign a label to it the way you had. I just kind of knew that, oh, okay, if I had to work till seven or eight o'clock tonight on something, I'm not going to go to bed at 1030. Maybe I'll cut gym time or cut something else, but I'll make it all about me, whatever I want to do. And I probably won't go to bed till about midnight. 
but still get up at the exact same time. Just talk to us a little bit about just how important sleep is to mental health, because it seems like it's one of the more one of the more simplistic things that you could do for your mental health. Totally. Like sleep is just 100% the most important thing you can do to help your brain recover from stress, uh, be less reactive to your to your day to day so that you can be more logical, be more creative on a regular basis. Sleep is just critically important. Uh, it helps remove buildup. Like every single day, there's going to be a buildup of different toxins that happen in your brain. And you think about things like Alzheimer's and degenerative brain diseases, the, those things occur when you don't allow time for your brain to get rid of and clean out. So every single night when you are going to sleep, like part of that sleeping process is clearing out this buildup of, of, of bad toxins. So that's part of it. Even if you think about things like memory and retention, like when you're sleeping and, and in deep sleep, what ha what's happening with deep sleep is it's taking all of the information that you've learned during the day and storing it in a, in a, in a more secure long-term memory site, the site of your brain. And then REM sleep is all about taking all of the information that it has, all of your memories and all this new information that's coming into the brain. It's connecting it all together. So it's connecting past experiences to current experiences and finding different meanings. That's why when you go to sleep one night and you wake up the next day and you're all of a sudden have solved a problem or you think, oh, that's what that means or, or feel more, you're, you're able to handle things better. That is REM sleep connecting and helping you find new insights and new meanings. So when you're not sleeping, you're just taking away essentially a superpower that every human has. And if you're sleeping more than the next person, I would always bet money on that person sleeping more to outperform the other person over time. 100%. Jeff, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Let's do it. Okay, the point in your career that you are most proud of? Starting Sales Health Alliance, 100%. It's just so meaningful. I, 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 we're, we're helping so many different people, or I'm, I'm helping so many different people on a, on a regular basis. It's, uh, it's really, really exciting. Your favorite movie? Favorite movie? I would have to probably go back to, I think, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. I think combining them was just such an epic experience for anyone that loves superheroes. And then anything Christopher Nolan, I'm usually all all on board for. So things like Inception, huge, huge fan of that movie for sure. Even Tenant, because I still don't get that one. Tenant was a big miss for me. Not a fan. God, what was the other one he did too? The one with Matthew McConaughey and Jessica Chastain? Interstellar. Uh, inter I loved Interstellar. See, I had to read the Wikipedia page three or four times to understand what was going on. And I'm a Chris Nolan fan as well. Like one movie he's done that I don't think gets enough attention is The Prestige. I really enjoyed that film with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Yeah, great movie. Fully agree. Your favorite video game? Favorite video game? That's tough because it changes. I'm like big time into replaying Dark Souls 3 right now quite a bit. Um, I think I've always loved overwatch as big into call of duty as a as a as a social aspect during the pandemic um i can't really kind of nail it down just to to just one if hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story who would you want to play you i think like i just i just think he's so funny and i'm not saying that i'm by no means i would say i'm a, a funny person but so i don't know if it would work but i i love ryan reynolds as as just like a human being in general so if he ended up playing me i'd be so honored by that and then leonardo dicaprio again awesome actor i don't know maybe pick those two and and i would say as a maybe as a joke pick i think it would be hilarious to see nick cage and some of the and <laughs> some of the sales roles that i've had oh god just freaking out on the phone doing the nick cage thing like he's not really yeah. playing you he's being you but he's playing himself exactly if hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story what would you call it yeah i think i i think it's it's a hard one like it's just i i don't i've been thinking about it and i i honestly i honestly don't have a good answer for this so i think i'm gonna I'm going to have to take a pass because I, I have no idea what it would be. And it would have to take some, some time, maybe something related to, I don't know, like, like mental health or like, 
I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Tell you what, think about it. And when we set this podcast live and promote it on LinkedIn, if you've got an answer, throw it in the comment section there. Sounds good. Your favorite book. Favorite book is another good one that probably changes all of the time. I think Good to Great is is a great great book by Jim Collins. Uh, Wisdom, The Wisdom of Anxiety by Cheryl Paul, huge, huge book. Um, Atomic Habits is another by James Clear, another pivotal book in my career. Anything personal development wise, brain, like psychology, neuroscience wise, I'm I'm all about. Your favorite song? Favorite song. As I think as embarrassing as this is, like, well, that's not true. I think I think favorite song I actually would have to say is is anything by Avicii early early 2010s is I'm I'm always so grateful that I grew up and sort of my youth was when Progressive House was just becoming more mainstream and more popular. And I think that main that that Avicii was just such a so far ahead of the game in that space that anything by him was was incredible. The best advice you have ever received? Good question. And I think it would actually be, I posted about this, or wrote about this recently. It was, this might just be a bus, bus stop. And my manager had indeed said that to me. And it was a very quick way to, I was not happy there and I couldn't realize, figure out why I wasn't happy. And understanding that it was just a bus stop and a very long journey was some pretty, pretty good advice. That's an interesting piece of advice. I got something similar from a, a former boss of mine at CBC years ago, name of Brad Furtney. And he told me, he goes, you want to be thinking two to three jobs ahead all the time. And when he did that, I started to think of everything I did as a stepping stone to something greater. So I guess you could kind of say a stepping stone is similar to a bus stop, if you will, because it's just along the way. Mm-hmm. Totally. I would fully agree. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I would say, I would say, like, aim for 80%. I think I was, like, rather than trying to be 100% all the time, I think there's a lot of value that comes from shooting for 80% on a regular basis as opposed to the fear, anxiety, and pressure and stress that comes from feeling like you always have to hit 100%. And if that doesn't happen the world's gonna implode on you um yeah i'd say that and i'd say just the other thing is like just seek discomfort like i'm a huge yes theory fan and they're everything that they're doing from a youtube standpoint and there's so much learning and so much opportunity that comes with mastering anxiety and the best way you can do that is by seeking discomfort and stepping outside your comfort comfort zone as much as possible if you had started sales health alliance what do you think you'd be doing if I hadn't started Sales Health Alliance, I think I would probably be still working in sales at a tech company, or I probably would have pivoted to be more uh, more involved, hands-on wise, maybe like some kind of physiotherapist or some kind of something related to physical health. I would say, Jeff, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks. You know, it was, uh, it was great chat- chatting with you, Victor. And uh, yeah, hopefully this resonates with someone uh, someone in, in your audience. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.